Hello, I'm Sean Gwezcek. Welcome to an extra edition of BFBS SITREP, telling one remarkable story of escaping Kabul as it fell to the Taliban. We were surrounded by the Taliban. Our vehicles were blocked in. The airport was total chaos. And the commander we've been negotiating with was responsible for killing a team member's best friend. What more could go wrong? Former Royal Marine H. Collins had served in Afghanistan when the Taliban were ousted more than 20 years ago. When the militants returned, he was responsible for the security of Japan's top diplomats and dozens of his colleagues. They were the last embassy team to leave Kabul's green zone, but hours later they found themselves surrounded at the security company's own compound. H has just published his account of what happened in a new memoir, Last Team Out of Kabul, and he's been telling me how the story unfolded. I think the team made preparations. Anything up to two weeks prior, we started burning sensitive things, so your family photos, hard drives that had um, embassy recce's and things like that. Guys were packing essential kit. We prepped about two weeks prior. And you talk in the book about several moments where the people you're trying to evacuate, they're trying to bring things like printers and, and you're, you're saying, no, travel light. We haven't got much space here. Yeah, indeed. It's it's, it's difficult because dealing with diplomats, I, I was very aware of they've never done an extraction. They've never been in that situation. So you do have to have a degree of patience uh, and so I, whilst I understand, yeah, it was a moment where I sort of kicked it to one side and says, um, with all due respect, ma'am, um, the embassy mission is over. Get in the car. Because at that point, Kabul is now completely encircled. So we are dealing with illegal roadblocks, an enemy that we're not entirely sure uh, which side of the city they want to take first. So I was planning back streets, main streets, arterial routes, documentation, everybody ready in terms of we were ready to move a good six hours before it happened. And tell us how many people you were responsible for. So I had myself, um, we had 11 guys underneath me. So four of those were the ambassador's team. And then obviously the other eight were the diplomatic security team. When we split between them, we had... 12 diplomats initially, we had 72 Gurkhas, and then we had four ops room staff. So a total of probably about 72 people from the Embassy of Japan. So we started to extract diplomats, we moved them to the company headquarters. We came back, we started picking up the Gurkha Guard Force and ferrying those guys. We've only got six cars to do this in. So it's and I'm on a, I'm obviously on the clock, so that we can hear gunfire in the city. Everything's starting to fall, so we back and forth, back and forth, and then we've got 72 people into the HQ, and then the HQ just gets flooded with civilians from all over the city, and we ended up with about 420 odd people. And when you got to the HQ, you've got to get those diplomats to the airport, but that doesn't go to plan either. Tell us what happens then. So, yeah, we, we had a, a patch of gunship from the Americans as Overwatch. We had a Predator drone as Overwatch. Uh, my guys geared up. We got the diplomats in. We drove about five 600 metres to the end of the road where there's just a massive gunfight between government forces and the Taliban. 
I get called forward by sort of two IC slash medic, and he says, "H, you know, it's pretty bad. I need you. I need you to make the call." So I drove forward, not too far forward to expose the client, but enough to have eyes on the situation to make that call. And uh, immediately, I knew it was bad. I thought, "There's no way I can drive the diplomats through through you know a gunfight. We've got PKMs. There's guys with RPGs like ready to fire, led up against the wall, which." Traditionally, the government forces tend not to use, apart from really in the provinces. So I thought, well, if one of them hits hits the armoured car, it's, it's, it's going to make a real mess. So I made a really difficult call on the ground to abort. And we did a J-turn. If everybody moves in, in sync, we J-turned out there, uh, covered the rear. And then I can see the Deputy Ambo sat in the back of the car. And I imagine that's the first engagement he's ever seen. And the reality of that, he's very wide-eyed and sat back. And the senior diplomat, who's a female, is sat next to him. And she's she was very together, as was the deputy Ambo. And, and they they look at me and I, and I say, look, I'm terribly sorry, but uh, it's decidedly unhealthy if we go this way. So I'm going to take you back. We're going to reassess. We're going to reevaluate. And yeah, what does happen next then? So we opted for the night move. I wanted to do that anyway. It's a lot harder for them to see me at night. We jump back in and we head straight down to Taipan Gate. That gate was run by the Delta team by the Americans. So we radio ahead. We're like, look, we're coming in hot. I've got 12 dips. Embassy of Japan. We've got air assets above us. Um, you know, please be ready to receive. And take us through those those next few moments because you have to wait for a little while, don't you? They don't immediately open that gate, do they? No, no, no. So nothing was because of what was going on from a security perspective is an absolute nightmare. I mean, it, it was literally anyone who who has experience in security, everything that could go wrong at that moment in time. So if you were to write a security nightmare scenario that nobody could pass, if it was an exam, that would have been it. We have a bit of back and forth, and, and I managed to, to say, look, you know, we are the Embassy of Japan. They're your asset, their assets above me. I sort of blagged it a little bit as well. I was like, they're running out of fuel. So I made it their drama. It says, you know, if you don't sort this out, they're going to run out of fuel. These diplomats aren't going to get out. The Embassy of Japan is going to remain in Afghanistan. You, know, you need to get me, yeah, yeah, no worries. No, it's, it's quite cool because they're, they're wearing uh, cut off board shorts and t shirts because they're behind the gate, you see. <laughs> So like, yeah, man, yeah, no worries. And I was like, oh, I need to lean on these Americans so bad right now. Come on, come on, you know, we need these gates open. And eventually, yeah, they do open and we're, we're into the air, uh, airfield and hooking up with the RAF. And I remember that point in the book where you're just so relieved uh, to, to see the RAF and to have that moment to hand over the diplomats because, you know, it's mission objective achieved. You made it despite all of that. Yeah, it's not the first time the RAF has saved my skin in Afghanistan either. In 2002, we were running low on food and water uh, on Ops Snipe with 4-5 Commando, and they dropped in then as well. So it was kind of 20 years later, I've got the RAF there receiving me. I think, wow, you know, we're, uh, here we are again, two decades later. Drop the diplomats off, and the female diplomat, she sort of leans forward, and she says, oh, thank you, H. I'm sorry about the printer. So don't worry about it. It's fine. <laughs> Least of my worries at the minute, I've got to go back into the city. So I'm not uh, overly concerned about the printer at that point. 
and the Taliban follow you back, don't they? Tell us about you know those those next few few days because it, it, again, it's not straightforward. No, so we we bounce out the airport. It's early hours. We drive out onto Airport Road as I moved out into the city. I started to come across the checkpoints. I can immediately tell you sort of your spider senses up and you think, this is bad, this is bad to so my guys. My lead element is really what you want to do. I says, just drive, drive, drive. I says, we're armoured, we're mobile. Speed is life. I've always learned that lesson from rolling in Iraq in the early days where you were constantly being hit. We started punching through these checkpoints. There's a lot of waving, but I said, no, absolutely not, we're going. And then... The last checkpoint before we get back to the HQ, they start firing the warning shots at us to slow us down. And on the radio, one of my guys says, hey, you know, they're firing at us. I says, listen, I'm not going to say that word on the radio right now because everybody listening is then going to panic. I say, I know what's happening. You know what's happening. Just keep driving. And if it gets bad, then I'll get on the net and I'll say the word contact but right now, just drive. Because, you know, they, they didn't hit the vehicles, but you can hear it going overhead. I can hear it cracking off the road. And until they hit me, I'm not, I'm not calling this. You know, I'm not calling this. I'm just going to keep driving. We, we get back to the compound. We go in, we de-kit. My guys have got a system already whereby there's, they're always on the roof and then over the tannoy. Taliban have, are inbound, you know, they're driving up the road about 500 metres out. The gear off, I remember thinking, this is it. You know, I'm going to get surrounded now by the whole of Afghanistan, essentially, because they took over the whole country except Kabul. So I'm now thinking, right, I'm going to take these dudes on and I could probably hold up about an hour. I walk out of the room and the ambassador's bodyguard meets me. We were at the bottom of the football and the team was above us. Got my M4 got as much ammunition as I can carry, and we both go up the stairs. By the time I get to the top of the stairs, I'm sort of first to punch out the door, so all the lights go off, it's completely dark on there, night vision comes on. So I've gone from being at the bottom of the stairs thinking, you know, how are we going to get out? It's to the top of the stairs, like, right, let's fight. You know, Let's fight for everything we're worth. We've got all the ammo. I've got 11 guys with me. You know, you've, you've got your team around, you've got guys around you, they're all ready to fight. And then we sort of just push out. I gave a real brief oversight where I said, you know, what's your background? Try to channel them in. Um, you, you know, let's get a bit of um, suppressive fire going, but don't waste ammo. Watch out for a diversion, because I was very conscious there's only one way in, so I thought they might come around the back. So, and there's a sort of junkyard out the back, which is the perfect place for anyone to hide and engage. Uh, you know, if they use heavy weapons, hide in the stairwell. And um, yeah, let's let's see how many hours we can fight for. And then what happens? So they they sit on the main gate and um, I can see the Taliban flag. And I can see them calling more people in and they're sort of, they're waiting because they don't know. You know, they're not sure. They're, they're obviously aware this used to be a military base, but I'm quite sure they didn't know who was in there then. We, we spend the evening on the roof waiting for these guys to come in. So, you know, I've got one machine gun at a choke point. I've got one machine gun to the rear. I've got guys with M4s. 
I've got no, in terms of heavy weapons, I don't really have too much other than two PKM, so I don't have any air assets or anything like that. And yeah, that's it. We're, we're sort of ready to fight. And as you say, you don't have any backup and you know that, but then all of a sudden the Taliban want to come in and they want to talk to you. And all of a sudden it's another unexpected curveball, isn't it? How did you feel about letting them in? Surreal, absolutely surreal. Uh, I wasn't happy about it. You're a security specialist is what they pay you to do. And you are now in this position that you never thought you'd be in. So there's an incredible amount of planning. We sat down as a team. We discussed it, as we always do. Open forum. You know, if you've got reservations, I want to hear them. Because the last thing I want to do is I want to take a team somewhere and they completely disagree with any of it. You know, I have to absorb their... Um, concerns, which is what I did, you know, we, we discussed it, we said, look, they're going to come in at this time, what do you reckon? So we hardened the building, we made sure only certain gates were open, so they had to take a certain avenue, we had ammunition on the stairs, so if they were initially coming in on the recce to call the rest of their crew in, you know, I could hold them off, we'd have weapon systems ready to go in the room, the management went unarmed, as obviously part of the trust process, very surreal very surreal and what did they what did they say uh and at this point how likely do you think it was that you were going to get everyone out to safety and escape yourselves so that i i got the impression from body language that i believe this was a recce i don't think they wanted anything in particular they, for me they, they they were making an assessment like who's here what they've got so I sort of took that as a show of force. So I decided, you show me yours, I'll show you mine. So I was like talking to the guys on the radio, on the roof saying, you know, I've got guys on the roof, I've got here. And then as a helicopter passed over, I punched into my radio and looked up and spoke. Now, I don't know who was in that helicopter, but the two guys on the ground were like, oh, is it easy? I thought, okay, I'm just going to blag it now. I'm going to make out like I've got all the assets in the world <laughs> ready to go, just making out... I was a lot bigger than I was, you know, I'm only 12 guys, I've got nothing, absolutely nothing, no, no assets whatsoever. But at that point, I thought, well, they don't know that. So how did you get all your guys to safety? You know, what happened next? So in, in, in the end, we, we had a bit of a political stalemate, whereas the UK Special Forces were above us every night at this point, waiting in, in, in case it went loud. We had the Predator drones with eyes on us 24-7. Uh, a lot of UK assets were now dialed into this team and we had to negotiate our way out. So we spoke, obviously, with the Taliban. They decided, OK, we can maybe let you go to the airport, but you know, you'll have to drive yourselves. And then there's a lot of... So for sort of six days, we do this whole go, no, go, go, no, go. And I'm starting to think, right, we're going to be political prisoners here or worse. So just try and keep everyone cool. And the guys are, you know, it's, it's quite, you know, they're still going to the gym, doing what they're doing, they're eating, just trying to keep themselves going as much as they can whilst we wait. And then there's an eventual move where they say, right, you can't take any of your weapons, you can't take any of your cars, you completely with us at our mercy. And that was, yeah, that's the most vulnerable I've ever felt. And I thought, wow, if this goes sideways now, you know, I've got no choice. 
This is day six, so the team's essentially been awake for six days, and they bring in all their own guys, all their own transport. You've got guys with machine guns, and they just, yeah, they unarm everyone, right down to the body armour, the helmets, go through your bag, literally walked out with probably a few items of clothing and a pair of trainers, and, and you think, right, okay, not that any of that matters, and then you're out into the forecourt and you, that, at that moment, it's probably the most vulnerable I've been in my career. I thought, okay, you're here with absolutely nothing. These guys can do absolutely anything they want. And en route, when you're finally en route there, there, there are lots of things in the book, lots of details that you talk about, but you specifically mention um, that point when civilians realise that you could be uh, a way of escaping um and there's there's a mother who has a baby and she she's trying to, to to give you her baby through through the minibus door yeah i mean it's, it's such a strange realization uh, and you do feel like i felt a bit guilty because for six days my priorities were the diplomats my fate is tied to that embassy my fate is tied to those diplomats and then once i'd gone through the nightmare of the diplomats, I then have all of these static security guys to try and extract. I've got my own team to deal with. So I've been very internal. I didn't really think about what was going on in Afghanistan at that time. But then when I was stripped of everything, I was put on that bus and I'm driving through the streets of Kabul, completely unarmed, which I've never done before, with my enemy of 20 years in front of me on a machine gun. And then you realise these people are looking at you thinking, oh, they can get me out. But then you're leaving them behind. And yeah, that's probably a low point. That, that, that took a while to absorb, um, a couple of months. And you think, I've, I've left people behind. What kind of a person am I? Uh, and that was literally that scenario with that lady was the last thing I saw in Afghanistan before I went into those gates. We got picked up by some SBS guys at the gate and they drive us through and we, we go to the processing centre and, yeah, they sort of check us in and, and everybody's looking at us like, who are these guys? Because obviously we've ditched all the tactical gear, so we're now sort of stood up looking like we're going for a night out, maybe. You know, like jeans, trainers random t-shirts, whatever we had available. Uh, you know, who are you guys? And he says, oh, we're the embassy of Japan. Oh, we've been waiting on you. You know, we, did, we didn't know what was happening. Neither did we. And uh, we go through the processing tent. There's a couple of children there who've been thrown over the fence. And they were just happily colouring in. You know, my team's been awake for a week. So the first thing they do is they just... I, no one even talks. No one even... They just sort of stretch out... <laughs> The RAF movers sort of come in and make sure we're, we're, we're sort of catered for. And as quickly as, as that happens, we're being whisked off onto the plane. And, and, and as it took off, I thought, you know, that's the most I've ever been pushed physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. You know, it's all, uh, you know, it's all just a massive potent mix of everything. And it wasn't relief that I felt because obviously, you know, you're leaving you're leaving a lot of things behind, which it's not within my nature to do things like that. So oh, it wasn't really relief that I felt. I just felt quite empty, if I'm honest. 
and given all of the work that you and, and fellow Marines put in when you were in, in Afghanistan and and everything that was done, is it possible to put into words, you know, how it feels now that the evacuation happened and we are where we are in, in 2022? It's, it's incredibly difficult. You know, I've lost guys. Guys have been horrifically injured because of this conflict. But it's, it's as with everything in life. I always go to the, the human element. I always go to the people. And I think, well, somewhere in here, there's, there's a person going, no, I saw on Sky News the other day a woman from the Ministry of Finance, which is a place I used to go to, she's standing up against the Taliban as 40, 50 females on the streets of Afghanistan protesting. Awesome. And, and, and they're the stories. They're the stories that people should be looking at. That's what we should be looking at. Go, you know what? How brave have you got to be to go out there and protest and, and fight for your right for freedom? H, thank you so much for um, taking the time to speak to us about your fantastic book, Last Team Out of Kabul. Thank you for sharing it with BFBS. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. This is Sidrep.